Today on Ag News Daily. You know, the collective farms, once the Soviet Union collapsed, uh, however many people were on that farm, however many hectares were out there, they divided it by the number of people and so on and so forth. And so a lot of people walked away with it. Good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome back to this Wednesday edition of the Ag News Daily Podcast. I am Mike Pearson, joined today by co-host Delaney Howell. Delaney, how you doing? I'm pretty good, Mike. How about you? Can't complain. Can't complain a bit. Been setting up for the auction all day, and I'm a little nervous because there is some dark clouds out to the west, and we just got an update from our... I, I guess our weather expert today, Madison Honkamp. <laughs> What's the weather doing down in uh, South Central Iowa? Yeah, so it's gonna, It's actually been kind of thunderstorm, but light rain here in winter set, and I think it's moving um, east. Maybe I'm. I guess I haven't even looked at the radar, but that's the way the clouds are going. Gotcha. Gotcha. All right. Well, I guess we'll just have to keep an eye on things and uh, see how it all just shakes out, I suppose. But Madison, when you think of the crops down in your part of the world, were you guys hurting for rain? Kind of. We've actually had pretty good rain, honestly, this summer. It has it hasn't been like rain all the time and we haven't really seen a more drought type weather it's just kind of you know like every couple weeks we get a little bit of a rainfall just enough to get water in the ground and get enough water for the crops but otherwise it's been I don't know I don't think we're hurt we're not hurting for rain I'll put it that way gotcha gotcha I know we could we could definitely use one over here in the Grinnell area but uh, we'll just have to see what ends up shaking out Delaney Mm-hmm. What's shaking out in the world of news today? Well, we saw the U.S. and China trade negotiations seemingly go well, and we have confirmation that they've wrapped up this round of first round of talks here since we saw those negotiations fall apart in May, and both sides have agreed to meet again in early September, according to a White House statement. And they also, the White House also released a statement saying that the Chinese agreed again to increase purchases of U.S. agricultural commodities. But again, no details were provided like the last round or the last uh, time that President Trump said that. But last week, President Trump was quoted saying that it's going to be 14, 15 months until after the election when we see trade negotiations start again but it sounds like that will not be the case at least for the time being well that is that is good news hopefully you know talk is cheap hopefully china will follow through and actually commit to some purchases and some deliveries of u.s ag products but at least we're we're hearing the right noises yeah and i was reading an article today uh can't remember if it was on bloomberg or what um talking about how really the pork industry could be kind of the olive branch or the thing that brings China to the table and that was confirmed or that suspicion might be confirmed by Rabobank's latest forecast which was released on Tuesday for the Chinese hog herd here for the year 2019. They are estimating now that the hog herd has already been shrunk by 40% from a year ago in China and the latest Chinese official estimates quote-unquote um, only ranged from 15 to 26 percent, but Rabobank says that due to the 
production we've seen fall in there. The sow herds we've seen, that's their latest estimate, and they're expecting it to, or projecting it right now to fall at least 50% uh, since last year. Their latest estimate from last year was estimated that the hog herd in China was 360 million animals. And they said in April that up to 200 million pigs could be culled or die due to African swine fever, while pork output will likely fall at least 30% in the country of China. So that's really could be, I mean, that might be our ticket here to continuing the discussions with China as those people rely on pork. We know it's a staple part of their diet and we'll see how long they're willing to put up with not having it. Absolutely. And, you know, I just think 200 million dead hogs mm-hmm. in a year. What, how do you handle that from a, from a human health standpoint? That is a lot of carcasses, carcassi, carcasses well, that you are going to have to be dealing with. And I know we've seen the, the big pits and in some incineration, but geez, I mean, I think back to the mess that we had with avian influenza and you know, that was devastating for a lot of those poultry producers. But the nice thing about chickens is they're, they're small. You can pack a lot of them into a hole with some sawdust and activate some decomposition and, nice. you know, get them cooking. <laughs> but uh, not for human consumption, obviously. Hmm. But, you know, I don't know, geez, what you do with all that many hog carcasses. So you know. I don't know. I'm, Peter sure, I'm sure PETA has their own explanation. When I'm sure China has their own animal rights activists, yes, but sure they talk about is. it and yeah, I don't know. I don't know if China does. I mean, if the, I, government, well, if the government is like trying to deal with this issue and some activists show up, they can just shoot them. It's China. Right. They don't have like due process like we do. Hmm. But what we do have, particularly in the upper Midwest, is a recent update from Farm Credit Services of America. This is the Farm Credit Bank serving Iowa, Minnesota, North Dakota, South Dakota. Uh, I don't know about the Dakotas, actually, but Nebraska, Illinois. Um, they just did a survey of 64 farms that they track the values on. And they said that despite uh, you know the, the shrinking of commodity prices over the past five years, Really, over a year-to-year basis, farm prices have been relatively stable. Um, They say that uh, the average decline in prices, it is still coming down, but it was only a half of 1% in the first six months of 2019. Now, compared to the peak of 2013, cropland values are down 20% in Iowa, 21% in Nebraska, and 12% in South Dakota. And uh, they anticipate that we should start to see the slowdown, not start to see, we will continue to see the slowdown be very gradual um, as as growers continue to place a premium on buying high-quality farmland. So I thought that was interesting. That is interesting. It'll be interesting, too, to see here as we continue to watch what's going on with the Fed and really just the general economy, how that impacts that as well. Absolutely. Madison, what news is jumping out at you? Well, I have... One article from USDA talking about SNAP, and I know we talked about, oh, I don't know how long ago, a couple of weeks probably, how Secretary Purdue is kind of cracking down on regulations for the SNAP program, and, and it, now he 
has sent letters to governors of 15 states with the most significant error rate problems. And USDA's Food and Nutrition Service is planning to issue $26 million in sanctions to these states with the higher error rates. And this was actually announced yesterday. Um, But the error rate uh, percent in 2018 was 6.8%, and that was up from 6.3% in 2017. So they're really wanting to get this down. But we'll definitely see how this plays out again. And, you know, USDA is really trying to get control of this program and figure out how they can make it better. So, again, we'll still keep our eye on this. All right, we certainly will. Yes, we will. In other uh, food-related news, or loosely food-related news, the FDA today gave its approval for using, I'm going to try and pronounce this correctly, I think it's pronounced leg hemoglobin, which is a key ingredient in the plant-based Impossible Burger. They gave their approval to use this leg hemoglobin as a color additive in the beef-like products. I hate that they use the word beef-like, but um, it's basically a fermentation from a genetically engineered yeast, which sounds the So it it helps give it some of its protein, uh, primarily used for its taste and also for the coloring to make it look like a burger. Gross. Yeah. Gross. I, whatever. Impossible I thought they burger. wanted it. I thought they wanted it to be all natural and hmm. organic or whatever. That's that's interesting. Yeah, I mean, I think from our perspective, coming from the world of conventional agriculture, when we hear somebody get fired up about a meat alternative, we just kind of assume it's expected to be quote unquote all natural organic blah blah mm-hmm. blah blah yeah because all you know, we kind of lump all those categories together but no I I don't think the Impossible Burger has ever made those claims I think mm-hmm. they are like I they're doing something that I think we should have done better in agriculture years ago and you know nobody's to blame for this we were following consumer trends just like they're doing today but they're really embracing the science behind their burger you know we're cutting edge we're technology in food blah blah blah. And they're using that to help sell it, which, you know, that's what we do in ag every day. We use cutting edge technologies to make food better and safer and and feed more people. But I don't know. I don't know. Possible burger. Gross. Haven't had one yet. I'm looking forward to trying one at some point (laughs) Mm -hmm. because I feel like I need to. Yes, you're going to report back to us and tell us how it tastes. I will. Yeah, I'll leave that to you, Mike. All right. That's fair. I will take one for the team. That's what I will do. That's my commitment to excellence on the Ag News Daily podcast. Wonderful. Love it. Yes. Well, we also got another commitment of a different sort today, Madison and Delaney. What's that? The Federal Reserve cut interest rates for the first time since 2008. They uh, they said that we're not seeing too much inflation, so they're not as concerned about overshooting or, quote unquote, overheating the U.S. economy with low interest rates. And they do have concerns about the global economy, especially amidst the trade war. And they said that they might be willing to consider further rate decreases over the next year. So the uh, the benchmark overnight lending rate uh, dropped from two and a quarter to two percent uh, here just today. 
Hmm. Yeah, I've been reading a lot of articles lately talking about are we starting to mirror the 80s farm crisis now with all of this stuff being said. And that we're heading into a period here of instead of like five or six years of downtimes in agriculture, some people are forecasting like nine to ten years. Sure. And I think that'd be pretty well in keeping with the super cycle of agriculture. Mm -hmm. But a good news for ag, you know, one of the primary drivers of the crisis in the 80s wasn't just low commodity prices. It was skyrocketing interest prices. So at least we've got the Fed cutting rates rather than hiking them to, you know, 9, 10, 18, 22 percent like we saw in the early 1980s. Right. That is true. That's a true point to keep in mind. Absolutely. It's true. It's a great point. I made it, Delaney Howell. Oh, okay. I make good. Sometimes you do. Sometimes. I'll take it. (laughs) Well, it seems like biofuel producers and corn growers are making a point today talking in the D.C. Circuit Court to force the EPA to reallocate gallons lost to the RFS mandates from those exemptions granted in the small refiner waivers. Essentially, a coalition and group of producers um, have come together challenging this. They've put a petition together to restart a court case they brought up last year, actually, to convince the EPA to reallocate those gallons and include them in the RFS mandates for this year, this coming year, 2020. So another thing we'll just keep an eye on there. Okay, yeah, that would be nice if if they would actually follow through and reallocate those gallons. Mm -hmm. We'll see if they do. Right, yeah, my... Hmm. I have, I wouldn't wager money on it. I'll put it that way. Yeah, I think I'd agree. Um, <laughs> you know, I want to circle back real quick. You know, Delaney, you were talking about the Impossible Burger mm-hmm. um, and these fake meat companies that have been uh, you know just exploding here over the past year. Well, ag commodity trader Bungie um, actually reported a profit in its second quarter uh, as opposed to a, a loss a year ago, and there were two reasons that Bungie reported a profit. The first was that they made some changes to some of their South American operations that reduced some costs and helped them um, find more money down in South America. The second reason is that Bungie owns nearly a million shares of Beyond Meat. They own 1.6% of the company, and the explosion of price in those shares has uh, also what moved Bungie into a profit for this second quarter. So I thought that was interesting. There's conventional agriculture working hand-in-hand with this new technology to, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, make money. Mm -hmm. Well, that's... So maybe, you know, cattle producers, whatever, others in our world need to look at diversifying our business plans by, you know, taking some ownership in these crackpot fake meat (laughs) ventures. (laughs) <laughs> I don't suppose Just we got a lot of I don't suppose we got a lot of fake meat people listening so we're I think you're safe well, no, saying that. that that's my point we're convinced I mean I imagine listeners if we're wrong find us on Facebook and Twitter you can just search for Ag News Daily tell us how wrong we are we love the interaction <laughs> um, <but laughs> since we are conventional folks if this impossible meat beyond meat fake meat bleh, is the wave of the future it would be wise for us to diversify our operations mm-hmm. by owning stock in some of these companies, even though it might physically pain us to do so. It physically pained me the other day because I bought something organic at the grocery store. Ugh. You just got ripped off, Delaney Howell. I know. 
but they didn't have the normal version of the product. So it was either not buy it or buy organic. Right. And at the end of the day, that's an organic producer out there working hard, selling to a niche market. I know. I just hate. Yeah. By principle, I hate shopping organic because I just, you know. I want all the GMOs. And I want them (laughs) right Right. in my face. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Give me science. That's my (laughs) favorite. Well, let's see. Do we have any other news for the day, Madison Honkamp? Um, Well, there's just one thing. One other thing that I had, I know we're going to see Japan talks on Thursday and Friday, I believe. They will be here to um, get those trade talks rolling. But Dairy is really hoping to get in on this deal because they are losing lots of sales in Japan Not that now that the 11-nation TPP is in effect without the U.S., um, but hopefully this farm-focused agreement between Washington and Tokyo could reverse that downtrend and provide an even bigger win for milk producers. So I think this could be a win for dairy if it is if Japan does decide to buy milk from us or dairy products from us. And I know the National Milk Producers Federation has commented on this, and they are really hoping you know that we can see this really talked about in the Japan and E. EU deals. All right. That is that is a good point. Uh, dairy market could really use a favor today. Dairy mm-hmm. prices were down yeah. big in Chicago. Uh, what do you say, Delaney? Should we jump over and talk markets? Let's do it. All right, folks. Our markets are brought to us by our friends at the Zaner Group. Friendly reminder, I am now an employee of Zaner, working hard to help farmers manage their marketing risk. If you want to get in touch with me and work with one of our talented brokers, give me a call. You can reach me at 312-277-0112. That's my direct line. You can shout your thoughts at me and uh, hopefully open an account and we'll help you manage your marketing risk. With that, let's take a look at where things closed, and we've got a lot of marketing risk on the screen today. It is red in every single market we are going to talk about today. Starting with corn, September corn contract dropped 11 cents, closed at $4 and a quarter. December contract down 11 cents, dropped below that 420 break in the market, filled that gap below it, and then went all the way down to close today at 410 even. Soybeans, similar story. The September contract down 15 and a quarter at 869 even. November, also down 15 and a quarter, closed the day at 881 and a half. In Chicago wheat, September down 10 cents on the day at 487 and a quarter. December down nine and three quarters, finishing the day at 493 and a quarter. Looking over at the world of livestock, weakness continues. That break in corn prices didn't do anything to help feeder cattle. In live cattle, the August contract was off $1.20 at 106.90. The October down 142.50 to finish at 107.65. In feeders, that September contract dropped $1.60 on the day at 142.45. The October down $1.32.50 to finish at 142.55. And in lean hogs, ugly, ugly day again in the hog market. The October contract was limited down, dropped the daily $3 trading limit to close at $71 even. December also limit down, finishing the day at 70, 27 and a half. And as I mentioned, dairy also in trouble today. The August contract dropped 19 cents, wrapped at 17.28. The September down 14 cents to close at 17.66. All right. Well, for our interview today, we are going to have a conversation with our good friend, Casey Seymour, who is the host of an excellent podcast on the Global Ag Network. We'll let Casey tell you a little bit more about it, as well as his trip to the Ukraine. 
Well, folks, we've got a good conversation coming up today with our good friend, Casey Seymour, host of the Moving Iron podcast. Casey just got back from a trip to the Ukraine. Casey, how you doing? I'm good, Mike. How about yourself? You know, I can't complain one bit, but I tell you what, I have not been out of the country for a little while. So why don't you bring us up to speed? What took you over to uh, Ukraine? Uh, we're over there trying to look for some uh, some partners that we work with. Uh, we have some uh, equipment uh, partners over there that we work with to sell equipment to in, in various channels that we have uh, established over in Ukraine. So I was over there checking on that business. And what did you see? Well, A, how long were you there? And what all did you notice about the country? We were there for uh, about two weeks. I think we were there actually 13 days or something like that. So we we saw we saw quite a bit. I mean, you know, Ukraine is a, is a country known for wheat production, and we definitely saw plenty of that. Um, oddly enough, it was uh, warmer there uh, by quite a bit, by about 20 degrees there than when we were in what it was uh, back here in Nebraska um, when we were over there. So. They were experiencing a little bit of a, of a heat wave uh, when we were experiencing um, a lot of that, that cool rainy weather. Um, I was there, let's see, when was that? I was there the first uh, two weeks of June. So um, we had a, didn't really have the break from the weather yet that we were looking for, um, but they had it over there. And uh, I, you know, some folks were kind of worried about that late stage of, of wheat when, uh, when the heat gets going, it's not necessarily good for it. So um, it'd be interesting to see how, how their uh, yields uh, fare out there, but for the most part, it looked like they were going to have a pretty decent wheat crop. Okay, so where where in Ukraine were you? I, I was in Kiev, uh, which is the center. That's kind of uh, uh, for those that aren't familiar with, with Ukraine, that is kind of the north east central part of the uh, of, of Ukraine there, and um, that's the, the the nation's capital. So when you want to conduct business in Ukraine, you pretty much have to go to Kiev to do it. Um, everybody has an office there. Um, you know, it's kind of going to be similar to going to Washington, D.C. to talk to uh, the USDA or something like that. But um, all the main banks and those kind of things are all, all in Kiev. Um, so it's, uh, it's a pretty centralized uh, business structure there. But um, I was also down south in the very southern part of uh, Ukraine uh, along the Black Sea in Odessa. Uh, so that's a, a major port city there, and that's uh, kind of a, one of those, it's pretty close to Crimean Peninsula, we didn't see anything, nothing crazy, but it's one of those uh, port cities that uh, is very important to Ukrainian economy, and it's one of those places that, that uh, you know, Russia has tried to mess with by building bridges across stuff that ships can't go in and those kind of things. So it's a, uh, it's a, it's a unique place, but there again, uh, the wheat we saw down there was about the same way. It obviously was going through a harvest when we were there. And, um, and from what we could tell, it looked like there was a fairly decent crop to get. I'll be darned. So Casey, you know, your background is of course in farm machinery. You work with a lot of growers, you work with a lot of dealer groups across the country here in the U S and Canada. What, what are some of the main differences you notice in, in how buying happens between North America and Ukraine? What were some of the things that really jumped out at you? Oh, and easily the biggest thing is is access to capital. Um, You know, in in Ukraine, there's not, um, there's not the access to capital that we have here in North America. Um, Interest rates are significantly higher. Um, I think think the uh, wrote an article not too long ago, and I, I said that, uh, you know, the interest rates that they see there would make the 1980s look like that like a cakewalk, you know, so they're, they're, um, 
they're very high interest rates. There, there's not necessarily a lot of banks that are out there ready to, to lend money um, unless you can pay it back immediately type of thing. There, there's no operating notes, those kind of things that we that we are accustomed to here in North America. So when you start dealing with customers there, um, you know, they're, they're going to pay you in grain. They're going to pay you in um, a lot of different ways, uh, kind of almost barter system-like, um, you know, to get their crop cut and those kind of things. They want to use the machine and then and pay you uh, when their crop gets in. So there's some legal agreements that you come across, but, but for the most part, it's it's very much just a, a cash system and not, not, not a lot of credit being extended. So how do these growers in a system like that with crazy interest rates still producing a commodity crop like the rest of us, how do they make things work? Well, I, I think it's just, it's, it, they don't really have, well, the biggest thing is they don't have a lot of debt, right? So without a lot okay. of debt, they don't have a lot of, a lot of overhead to worry about. Um, the other side of that too is that the overall labor force over there is very cheap. You know, you can get, uh, I would venture to guess that it's probably at one-tenth of the cost to produce uh, what in Ukraine as it is in, in the U.S., and that might be high, you know, so it's it's a very, very cheap, very cheap labor. Um, when you get outside of the major cities and you're in the more rural parts of, of uh, Ukraine, it's uh, it's almost, it's, it's second world-like. I mean, there's there's not a lot of, of things going on, a lot of people just, there's not a real need for money. I know that doesn't sound quite right, but there's not a big, um, it's just the, the cost of living there is not so, as high as it is here. So labor rates are, are way less than what you see here. So it's that, that number one, that's the, that's the far and away the, the biggest thing we start looking at that. Number two is, I mean, the dirt that they grow over there and growing over there is, like Iowa, Illinois, and Indiana all had a kid, you know what I mean? And it's it's deep black topsoil for 25 feet, you know, it's just, Jeez. so it's the, the the ability to grow crops over there is, is, is substantially high when you start looking at their ability to produce, um, you know, the yields and, and, and the bushels that we see in the U.S. Wow. That, you know, it is fascinating. I've heard a lot of people talk about the uh, the depth of the topsoil over there. And then the other thing that I've heard a lot of people talk about, Casey, is just the size of operations. They, they tend to be very, very large um, and, like you say, very well funded because they, they don't have access to all that capital. While you were there, did you uh, did you work with any of the larger growers? Not this particular time, but in times before, I had stopped and, and, and visited with some some larger producers, and that is correct. I mean, you have, you know, the collective farms. Once the Soviet Union collapsed, uh, however many people were on that farm, however many hectares were out there, they divided it by the number of people, and and so on and so forth. And, you know, so a lot of people walked away with, you know, it might be a thousand hectares, and a hundred people worked on it, and. When the collapse happened, everybody got 10 hectares, right? Well, you can't really do much of 10 hectares, which a hectare is about two and a half acres. So you're looking at 25 acres. And kind of what you saw happen over time is one guy would, would either rent or buy the other person's 25 hectares, you know, or 25 acres and kind of slowly start building this stuff up. And, you know, a lot of oligarchs and stuff like that that had the money during the, uh, during the collapse going out and buy a bunch of ground. But it's not uncommon to have you know, a 50,000 acre, 80,000 acre, you know, 100,000 acre um, farm out there. And it's just, it's 
it's amazing what they're able to uh, able to do. You know, like I said, it, another thing too that just to kind of show you where they're at technology-wise, there's still a lot of uh, horses and wagons and those kind of things um, on on balance sheets over there. So it's not uncommon to see, uh, yeah, see horses pulling, you know, cartfuls of grain to the elevator or whatever. I mean, it's just it's not uncommon to see that. Well, and so you mentioned cartfuls of grain to the elevator. What does the marketing system look like? Is it pretty similar to what we'd recognize with, with co-ops elevators spread throughout the countryside? Or are these guys, I imagine if you're 80,000 acres, you're probably selling direct to some end user on the coast. What have you known? What have you seen about uh, how they market their grain? Well, one thing I've noticed is that, you know, you have the Cargills and the Bungies and, and the ADMs and those kind of folks are all over there as well um, doing that. But for the most part, there's just a lot of uh, a lot of direct contracts. There's a lot of organics that get grown over there. Um, several customers that we ran into were, were growing organic wheat and they had a contract with uh, some manufacturer somewhere that was going to use it to do whatever they're going to do with it, right? So there, there's you see that there. Um, but the elevator system, it's nothing like we see here and it's, uh, until you get along the coast. But if you're dealing with the Cargills and those kind of folks, it's similar in ways, but it's different in a lot of ways, too. So um, I guess to answer your question, it's 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 a similar, but far enough apart that it's a kind of a different animal. So they're 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 doing what they're they're doing and they're they're, they're contracting those kind of things and, and doing those similar operations. But it's just it's a different animal when you start looking at how they go about getting things marketed and paid and those things. So Casey, when you're over there and you're doing business, you're working with companies across the Ukraine, how do you, I guess, how is it nerve wracking knowing that, uh, that you're in a politically unstable area and uh, you know, things can kind of change on a dime as we saw two years ago when, when Russia moved in. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, there's a lot of that tension out there. Um, a lot of folks talk about it, but to be honest with you, most of the people I talked with there weren't concerned about it at all. Um, their idea was, you know, Crimea is Crimea, let it be. Western Ukraine, they don't even speak Russian, they speak Ukrainian, which is kind of like, it's kind of the difference between, like, the best way to describe it would be, uh, you know, like the Latin derivatives in English, you know, you have Spanish and French and everything else. It's kind of like that, where it's, it's a similar base, but it's a different language you see what i'm saying but it, it, it but if you go to western ukraine they they hate russia they don't like russia they don't want anything to do with russia they like the ukrainians and that's that the closer you get to russia obviously the more russian sympathizers you run into and those kind of things so primarily um there wasn't a lot of concern about that exploding and, and going on um moving moving forward if anything uh they see there i think they feel that the crimean peninsula has changed hands between ukraine and russia so many times over the over the centuries that this is just another one of those things and sooner or later it'll it'll settle down and go back to the way it was so my biggest concern about doing business over there is is just being able to supply equipment and, and being able to get aid in a timely fashion the one thing about export equipment and working in that side of the business is that there's um those, those channels dry up about as fast as you find them so it, hmm. you have to be constantly looking for new um new growth and, and those kind of things across across that country. Wow. 
wow, Casey, I mean, this sounds like a fascinating trip. It sounds like it's one of those things where every time you go, you learn a little bit more. But I want to talk just for a second about what it is you do outside of the Moving Iron podcast, in case our listeners aren't uh, haven't come across your podcast yet. Tell us what it is you do there. Um, on the Moving Iron podcast, basically, it's a podcast that's designed for the equipment marketplace. And so I'm focused on the economic drivers that that have to do with uh, with with the farm equipment business. So, you know, we, we have uh, commodity folks on, uh, three different commodity people on, um, Tuesday, Wednesday, and Friday, and we talk about what's going on in the marketplace there. I have economists, uh, yeah, um, I'm sure your Pete's kind of one of those guys that pops in from time to time, talking about what's going on in the auction market and what he sees happening out there. Uh, all the economists I have on, we talk about, you know, trade and how that affects what's going on with the farmer and, and, and the rancher and how that looks. So. I really focus on those economic drivers because obviously the more money the, uh, the producer has, the, uh, the more money hopefully they'll spend on equipment. Absolutely. Casey, before we let you go, where can people get the podcast? Where should they be checking in on Facebook or on the web? Um, you can find me on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram at Moving Iron LLC. You can also check out me, check me out on um, LinkedIn. Also check us out on Global Ag Network. Um, that's where we post everything, so it goes out there. iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher Radio, TuneIn Radio, all those, all those places you go find in your podcast. You can, you can find me there. Listeners, check it out. Casey, really huge thank you for taking the time to talk to us and for filling us in on your trip to Ukraine. All right. Well, big thanks to Casey for taking the time to chat with us. Fascinating conversation about a fascinating country. Madison, if our listeners want to get caught up on other fascinating conversations that we've had, where should they go to get our past episodes? Well, Mike, listeners can always find us at our website, globalagnetwork.com slash agnewsdaily. They can find lots of our past episodes there but if they want to get in contact with us they can find us on social media on facebook instagram and twitter at ag news daily and at global ag network fantastic delaney with that should we let the people go let's let them go (laughs) 